He was a remarkable one-term president and exactly what we needed. It is the week of March 15th, and welcome to episode 71 of Fault Lines, the National Security Institute's podcast that explores the disagreements between the political left and right on issues of national security and foreign policy. Today, NSI senior fellow Lester Munson will be doing a deep dive with Andy Card and Andrew Natsios, editors of Transforming Our World, President George H.W. Bush and American Foreign Policy, recently released earlier this year. Andy Card served as Deputy Chief of Staff and Secretary of Transportation in the H.W. Bush administration, and Andrew Natsios served as the Assistant Administrator within the Bureau of Food and Humanitarian Assistance at USAID during the H.W. Bush administration. Andy, Andrew, thanks for doing the podcast. It is an honor to be with you. Thank you very much. My wife got her master's degree in literature from George Mason University, so this is an added uh, chit of good things for me, because she was proud that I was doing it. Thanks for doing it. Uh, We appreciate it. Uh, So can you tell us the story of this book and how it came together, transforming our world? Why did you put it together? What's the the theory behind it? You answer that one, Andrew. So the the title of the book is interesting. It was suggested by the first director of the Bush School when it was created more than 20 years ago, Chuck Herman, who's a very prominent scholar himself. He's retired now. But uh, Bush's memoirs are called A World Transformed. So Chuck said, why don't you just move the the language around a little bit and say uh, transforming our world. The problem is, which I found out after the book was in print, that the United Nations has now titled the development goals transforming our world so when you go up online all the un stuff comes up not our book you have to actually put down nazi or card or bush to to get to our the the pages that and and there's actually bookstores all over the world now that have a page on this apparently a lot of people are intrigued by this i was just on a call with the the consultative group of international agricultural research which is uh, institutionalized the Green Revolution. It was created in the late 1960s. And I was talking to one of the senior directors, and I just told him I'm about to do a podcast. He said, what is it about, Andrew? And I mentioned, he said, I really like George Bush. This guy is Belgian. He's a Belgian uh, businessman, economist. And he said, I'm going to get that book. So every time I mention it in different audiences, uh, uh, people who, who, who respect him, they want to hear about the book. And the inception of the book was this. After the president died, I said, you know, a lot of other people are also beginning to die because, you know, he served 30 years ago as president. If we don't capture the memories of these people now and their notes, because many of them kept diaries and journals, uh, it's going to be lost. And so uh, I wanted to fix the record on a bunch of things that happened which are misinterpreted by historians, for example, what happened in Kurdistan and northern Iraq after the first Gulf War. And I used to get really annoyed by reading it because it's completely wrong. It's just factually wrong as to what happened. And we got to change that in this book. To And the other thing is, there's a whole bunch of things that Bush did that no one, he, did, he never promoted what he did. In many respects, he is the Truman of the post-Cold War world in the sense that he created the international institutions and the national institutions, which got us through the last 30 years of American history and world history. 
if you look back at those 30 years, there has been enormous progress made. And the American people don't realize what it was like 30 years ago. And so part of this book is to remind people what George Bush would not do, which is to give credit to him for some remarkable things that have happened behind the scenes quietly. I'll tell you one, I'll just tell you one story. So when I, I was the head of the Office of Foreign Disaster Assistance in USAID under 41, and um, the world was collapsing, the, the developing world, and there was uh, countries falling into civil war all over the world. We went from five civil wars in the 80s to about 20 when I took office in the early 90s. And Ethiopia was in the middle of a civil war, and there was a famine developing because of a drought, and we could not get any food in because Mengistu, the Marxist dictator of Ethiopia, said, if you move food into the port of Misawa, I will bomb these shipments. And it was American food from, we were orchestrating from AID, and the World Food Program was working on it. And then Isaiah Appleworth, who's now the president of Eritrea, was a rebel leader then. And he said, if you move any food to that port, I will blow it up. I said, it's for your people. He said, I don't care. I don't want the Gister to get credit for this. So both sides are going to blow our food up. We sent a note to the White House without asking anything. And all of a sudden, Isaiah Zapowerki and Gorbachev, I mean, uh, um, Mengistu, announced for humanitarian reasons they've decided to open the port. And I said, well, what happened? Apparently, the president called Gorbachev and said, call that clown up and threaten him. Because the Soviet, it was a client state of the Soviet Union. Gorbachev called Mengistu up and said, you either open that port up and leave them alone to deliver that food, or I'm going to shut down all aid and your government will collapse overnight. And Bush didn't even go through the foreign ministry and the State Department to do it. He called him directly. And, and Gorbachev didn't go through the ministry to call up Isaiah Saberwerk to threaten him, to, to threaten um, Mengistu. Mengistu. Bush did stuff like that all the time. And these stories have never gotten out. The reason there was no famine then and that hundreds of thousands of people didn't buy is because Bush called Gorbachev. That's literally what happened. That does not happen nowadays. I have to tell you, presidents don't make calls like that anymore. So I, I think there's a lot of things in this book about the granularity of Bush's foreign policy that intrigued me. Uh, that I, I thought we need to capture this. So I, I talked to Andy about who we should ask to write chapters. So all of the chapters in this book, with one exception, are written by people who actually worked in the administration. Now, some of them are scholars like Condi Rice and Phil Zellico, but they were at the NSC under Brent Scowcroft when, and that's the perspective they're writing from. Andy made the list up and I, you know, because I was at a very low level in the administration. Uh, Andy was in the White House when this happened. So I didn't know some of these people. So I remember one of them called up, who was writing his own book, and I don't mention his name because it's an amusing story. And he said, I'll write it, but I hate you. I said, what do you mean you hate me? He said, I am writing another book. I cannot be interrupted, but I have to do this. I said, well, I have to do it. He said, because the best four years of my life was spent under George H.W. Bush. And Andrew, I, it's obviously Richard Haas. Yes, it is Richard Haas. <laughs> <laughs> and he told me he'd feel guilty if he didn't do it. So he, he was joking when he said he hated me. Well, maybe he wasn't joking. <laughs> but anyway, he wrote a wonderful chapter. So the inception of that was, was Bush's own death. And then uh, our, we were beginning, all of us, to think back what happened. 
And so there's more details about the diplomacy of what he did and how he did it and how he empowered his people and what the principles were. When people say Bush didn't have a vision, well, he didn't have a grand vision to transform the world because um, even though he did transform the world, because he was nervous about these grand visions that turn out frequently to be disasters. He, he took an incremental approach to policy. There's a problem. Let's fix the problem. Go on to the next problem. Fix that problem. And then there was a, a larger design to it, but he didn't like a lot of rhetoric. He just liked to do things. That's my impression, Andy. I mean, you were there more than I was. Well, first of all, the, the introduction to this book, which is written by Andrew Natsios, really is a great summary of George H.W. Bush and the team that he put together and how it happened. So I do encourage people to read the introduction because it does make a difference. George H.W. Bush really was the most prepared person to be president, especially during a challenge to diplomacy in the history of our country. And I think people recognize that. He was a remarkable one-term president and exactly what we needed. But in part, it was because he respected the institutions of democracy and the institutions of government. And that respect ended up creating a mutual love between people who had to implement policies and those that were made policy. So there was no conflict between people. A policy is very easy to make up. Unfortunately, almost everybody can make up policy. The real mark of success is how do you decide what policy should be in place and how will it be implemented? How do you execute the decision to, to do it? And President Bush, George number 41, was the best at making sure it wasn't just policy, it was also the execution of the policy that counted. So he surrounded himself by people who are not only good at developing policy, they were excellent at making sure that the policy that was developed was developed with an expectation that it could be executed and implemented. And their track record of meeting the policy expectations that were laid out is probably unprecedented in terms of the breadth of responsibilities that they had. And that came because he respected the institution. And much of this book or, or this series of essays is about the people that the president attracted and empowered to do their job. And he had a remarkable ability to recognize people that could execute the policy and make sure that it lived up to the president's expectation. And he trusted them. He empowered them. He was not a micromanager, but he did make sure someone paid attention to the detail and could explain to him what was going on. So it's so easy in the White House to get inflated with your ego because you came up with a policy. He made sure that the ego didn't dominate it. And it was how do you implement the policy that makes the difference? And if we're not implementing it to live up to the president's expectation, what do we need to do so that it will live up to the president's expectation? So the team that he put together and Jane Lute, who is not internationally known, even though she's an international figure, uh, has a wonderful little essay on the people that were attracted to work for him in the national security realm under Brent Scowcroft, who is, is also a rock star. And, but Jane Lute, I think, 
described very well how important the people were that were tasked with making sure the policy was sound and it could be implemented and executed to live up to the president's expectation. Let me let me ask you guys about the those people you asked to contribute to this book in particular. We talked about some of them, Richard Haas, Condi Rice, James Baker's got uh, a chapter in the book. How did you engage with them? Did you ask them to write about a specific thing or did you let them write about whatever they wanted? How did you how did you pull all that together? Because it sounds like that implementation, as we were talking about, might be rather difficult with some of those folks. There was some overlap. So, um, for example, I had asked, we asked Catherine Bertini, who was the Undersecretary of Agriculture, then went on to be the Executive Director of the World Food Program, and she transformed WFP into the leading and best managed UN agency. She's a historic figure, and she served two terms, which is very unusual, 10 years. And Bush orchestrated her election. They decided she would be the person. And, and she was probably one of the most powerful UN figures in the last 30 years, and WFP, it shows WFP is way in advance than, than the, most of the other UN agencies in terms of actually getting stuff done well and efficiently. And, and so, but she was writing on uh, the food issues, the humanitarian issues, but we had two other chapters on that too. And I, I had to make sure that they didn't sort of conflict with each other and, and re, or be repetitive. So that was an issue. And then we asked Horst, Hilschek, who was the national security advisor to Helmut Kohl to write a chapter on German reunification. He's the only one who was not a member of the administration. And I did that because German reunification was a transformative event. And we wanted to get a, a German view of this. And so we asked him, but then Condi Rice and Phil Zelico wrote a chapter on the collapse of the Soviet Union and on German reunification himself. So but they don't really conflict with each other. They 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 add, uh, I think, a lot. That's what I felt that you know the Bob Kimmets of the world and the Doug Pauls, the the, the people that were uh, not only big thinkers but big doers, and their reflections are a complement to the institution that they empowered, that the president empowered to get things done. So Ed Derigian and, and, and Dayton Maxwell. I mean these. These were people that really had to make sure that the policy was implemented. And that's why I think these essays are so important, because it's just not the the big shots at the White House. Some of these were big shots, but they most of them were not at the White House. And And, you know, the White House doesn't get to implement anything. They get to come up with ideas, but it's up to other entities of government to, to implement the programs. And so th- these essays are uh, really a wonderful path for people to discover of how do you do the job? Once the president makes a decision and motivates you, how do you do the job? So go ahead, Andrew. One story that uh, there, are th- there are implications we're only seeing now of some things the president did. And one of them is, is, the, is the NAFTA trade agreement between Canada, the United States, and Mexico. There's been a lot written about the benefits of the United States. Carla Hills gave a talk. She wrote the chapter on the agreement because she negotiated a lot of it. Uh, but there's a little part of it that I had not realized. And the former, I think it's either the foreign minister of Mexico or the finance minister of Mexico was telling me privately at a conference we were both speaking at 
He said that agreement completely transformed Mexican-American diplomatic relations, not just economic. From the Mexican-American War until George Bush was president, Mexico was almost always opposed to everything that we wanted to do in foreign policy. They were almost continuously attacking the United States because of the war and all that, and they'd never forgot it. And and having you know one of your two borders a hostile power. Now they're not attacking us militarily, but they were hostile to a lot of the stuff we were doing. They would not cooperate with it. You know, the one military in Latin America that refused to have joint exercises in the United States was the Mexican military. They refused to deal with us at all, and that has completely changed because of NAFTA. And one of the things that that I was told that Bush intended was gradually to tie the Mexican economy with the United States economy because it was already tied with Canada. I mean, that, that, that preceded the agreement. But the Mexicans had a 40% increase in per capita income, which is why immigration started dramatically slowed down. Most of the immigration in the last 30 years has not been from Mexico to the United States, but from other parts of Latin America, or 25% of it's not even from Latin America. There are people coming over the border from China and India and Africa, believe it or not. But the change in diplomacy of the Mexican government toward the United States has been dramatic and has profoundly affected the cooperation we have with the Mexican government and a whole host of issues. And that would never have happened if NAFTA had not been negotiated. So let's let's compare and contrast a little bit with China then, because I think that's, that's a great point you made, Andrew. Uh, uh, George H.W. Bush was uh, one of the architects of the early relationship between the U.S. and China, uh, which was very strong for a long time. A lot of consensus about how we should approach the biggest country in the world. Things have changed dramatically, of course, in the last few years. What what kind of lessons do you think we can draw from uh, George H.W. Bush's compassionate realism and approach to China that, that might help us today deal with this difficult relationship? Well, f- first of all, President Bush recognized how important a personal relationship is in the role of diplomacy rather than just uh, a national relationship. You know, so George Bush came to know people and he let people know him. And that allowed for a dialogue of trust because it wasn't all pomp and circumstance. It was really empathy. He, he could speak with empathy. He could listen with empathy. And that encouraged some of the other leaders also to develop some empathy for the positions that the United States took. But he was strong. He also would get disappointed. When things didn't go well, he ached. When Tiananmen Square happened, you know, he knew that the Chinese really misplayed that and didn't do the right thing. But he said, oh, it's so sad for them that this had they, we've got to we, we've got to do something about that. But we can't make it such that we're making a personal attack. We've got to show them that their ways were wrong and there are consequences for that. And so Brent Scowcroft and Bob Gates were remarkable during that period of time of helping the president, number one, live up to his own expectations on what China could do and try to get China there. So it was guiding China to to be more responsible. But I think he recognized that the journey that China was on wasn't going to slow down and they were going to be part of the world, whether we liked it or not. And they were emerging. Let's get them to do as many good things as possible and deal with that reality rather than just invite them to be an enemy for life. It was like 
Have a conscience. When you do things, have a conscience. Let us be your conscience. Let us be a pebble in your shoe when you're taking a step. Is this violating international norms? Is this violating institutions of government? Is it violating institutions of responsibility? And I think that President Bush was a good conscience for the Chinese. Now, they would probably never acknowledge that because they don't have a conscience, maybe. But anyway, (laughs) I think that he did uh, show them respect and appreciation, but also you've got to do a better job. Lift your head up and see what you're doing. Don't just keep your head down and do it. And that's, so that's why he did it. But, you know, we have to give a lot of credit to Brent Scowcroft and the relationship that he had with the president. And President Bush empowered his national security advisor, and he empowered the relationship between John Sununu, Brent Scowcroft, and Jim Baker. Were they always happy with each other? No, but it was a compliment. And that's why when you do read these essays, recognize the role of the personalities and how the president invited those personalities to get along with each other. Not to, not necessarily to agree all the time. In fact, he, he would push back if there was too much agreement. He would say, it can't be that simple. I, I know you've got another view. Let's tell us what it is. And you tend not to recognize the role that John Sununu played in that as well, because he could be irascible, but at the same token, he was very, very intelligent. And he grew to respect Brent Scowcroft and Jim Baker. And I'm going to say the reality that there was some tension between them was a good thing, not a bad thing, because it meant they all were empowered to speak up. And they all did. And I give Bob Gates an awful lot of credit. He was deputy national security advisor for much of this. And then back to the CIA as CIA director. But he did a a remarkable job with the deputies. Remember that many of the reforms that were dictated by the Iran-Contra affair were studied by Brent Scowcroft. And so he helped to reorganize the national security network, if you will, in the White House and make sure that the domestic side of the White House wasn't blindsided by something that was going on in international affairs. So the deputies committee became very important and, and Bob Gates as Deputy National Security Advisor, ran the Deputies Committee. And Jane Luke talks a little bit about that. But actually, all of the essays get into a little bit of the role of the institutions within the White House where you have debates and make sure that there's a complement with an E to what is going on. Sometimes there wasn't always a complement with an I, but there was always a complement with an E. But one thing I would add with respect to China is this. Bush understood, certainly Jim Baker and, and Brent Scowcroft did too, that all things in international affairs are connected to everything else. What happens typically is when there's a crisis like Tiananmen Square, everyone says, it's outrageous. These, the Chinese have massacred their own children. I mean, the bloodbath that took place was, it was an outrage. However, there were a whole bunch of other things that we needed the Chinese for And if we simply say we're going to shut this down, pull our ambassador out, and not have relations with China, we would not have been able to do all the other things we did. The Chinese did not vote on the resolution to uh, go after Saddam Hussein for the invasion of Kuwait. They simply didn't vote because they could have vetoed it. And they didn't vote because Bush called them and said, don't do that. If you veto this, you're going to damage your relationship with me and with this country. And they backed down and they decided not to do it. So he understood something that is lost, I have to say, by most of the presidents since and a lot of presidents before, which is you cannot separate one event 
in international affairs as though it's, it can be dealt with without looking at the secondary tertiary consequences of the, the cascading consequences of decisions you make. Bush was, it was like a, it's like a chess game. Bush understood that. And, and I saw this in these essays that he would be looking the second order, third order, and fourth order consequences of every decision down the road because he understood they're all connected to each other. And that is not something that a, someone with no diplomatic experience would understand. But he, uh, uh, he, he kept in touch with world leaders even when he didn't have to. And, and that invited trust and confidence. And so he was remarkable at, you know, on, the, on a whim saying, I haven't talked to President so-and-so for a while. I think I'll give him a call and see how he's doing. And they said, aren't you calling with a particular message? No, <laughs> I'm just calling to see how you're doing. Do you care about how I'm doing? Let me tell you what we're doing. So that trem paid tremendous burden. And Jim Baker cites that in his essays and the help that it was there. But it, it's, I think it kind of defines President Bush was the, the one word I would use. He was prudent. He had prudence in what he did. And he, he was not ideological. He was pragmatic. But he did things with a great deal of forethought, and they were well-grounded in what he thought to be right. And generally trying to create a climate of a win-win rather than a win-lose. And he would in, kind of invited people to be part of the solution rather than demanding that they be part of the solution. And... Give them in, he even gave them two or three chances to say they'd be part of the solution before he, he would give up on them. He really worked pretty hard. And, you know, I can remember sitting in his little uh, office off the Oval Office where he, that's where he would make his phone calls. And he would be sitting there with a, a list of leaders and he'd say, yep, it's Thursday. I'm going to call these four or five people. And he would call and the conversations were always remarkable because they solidified a relationship of trust, even if they were adversaries. Gorbachev said to Helmut Kohl that if he had not trusted Bush to the degree that he did, this would not have ended the way it did. And, and, and Horst Tilschik says that in his essay, that Gorbachev admitted that his trust for Bush, trust with Bush, uh, was a large factor in the, in the uh, in the uh, peaceful end of the Soviet empire. Most empires, when they end, there's a world war. And that did not happen in this case. Henry Kissinger said that if you look historically, when a, when a, a, a empire is collapsing, it usually causes a world war and a lot of bloodshed. There was no bloodshed. It's actually amazing. The entire Soviet empire in Eastern Europe collapsed with no bloodshed. And the reason is, is because Gorbachev and Bush were on the phone constantly. Tilshek says that he was on the phone almost every day with uh, with Brent Scowcroft and Ed Islam. And, and, and that, you know, people don't... I remember, I have, I, there's a couple of historians that Bush had nothing to do with German reunification, which is complete nonsense. There was a, um, I think it was the 25th or 30th anniversary of the reunification of Germany. And there was a concert with a German orchestra in Houston. And the consul general... For Germany was there, a woman diplomat, and she got up between uh, the pieces that were being played, and she said, and President Bush was there. He was being honored. 
And she stood up and said, I want to thank you, Mr. President, because if you had not been president and do what you did, my country would not be reunited. It was you who orchestrated this. This is the, a German diplomat saying this. So I'm always astonished by historians who just completely ignore the historical record to uh, push their ideological biases when they write. A phenomenal achievement in retrospect, probably that we didn't even appreciate. I think we appreciated at the time, but probably not enough. Let me ask you, Andy, about something that you referenced earlier, which was the Iran-Contra affair. Of course, it was a big scandal at the end of the Reagan administration, a lot of repercussions you know, impeachment was discussed, thankfully not pursued, uh, but it really revealed a lot of problems in not just policy making, but policy execution. President Bush came in uh, with General Scowcroft, cleaned up the, the system, re- changed the NSC. Can you talk about what that was like back then and, and the challenge they faced? Well, it was it was a challenge because the the Scowcroft Commission, which reviewed the Iran-Contra situation, really did say there's got to be better communication. And a lot of the problems in the Iran-Contra affair were that it was a siloed effort that was almost rogue. Unfortunately, it was rogue with permission. and But it wasn't well viewed by, well, there wasn't any peripheral vision to it. It was all tunnel vision. And basically what Brent Scowcroft did was say, that's not the way I'm going to run the NSC. So he reorganized the NSC. It was not dramatic. And, and some of it was more personality or structure. Um, but they did create and implement the so-called deputies committee. And the deputies committees are the deputies, you know, deputy chief of staff, the deputy secretaries, whatever it is, the deputy attorney general. It's the number two people. And they got there and they really hashed through policy. And it's done uh, with with the deputy national security advisor running the show. The national security advisor doesn't even usually sit in. He just gets briefed by after what had happened. Then there's a, a national security principles committee meeting. And that's the principles without the president. And the deputies usually come and sit in the back seats and that structure was very helpful. It was the first time that the domestic side of the White House was invited in to see what are you doing. Now, it doesn't mean that the domestic side of the White House drives the policy, but it makes sure that the peripheral vision doesn't have a discordant sound as a result of the policy. I always tell people, if you're looking to make your great announcement on, on Super Bowl Sunday, nobody will pay attention to your announcement. So it's good to have peripheral vision and know when Super Bowl Sunday is going to be. But Brent got down in the weeds and brought reform, but he also brought confidence, trust, and ethics. And he let people know they were part of a team. And Jane Lute highlights that in her essay. But it's really comes through with everyone, you know, Richard Haas, all of the people that served in the national security side, I think, complemented the way that reorganization was done within the National Security Council system. And the fact that the voices could be heard. The president did welcome discordant voices to meetings. He did not want monolithic thinking. It wasn't his one option, Mr. President. Here are several options. Let me tell you why we think this one's the best one. 
And so he was good about doing that. And Brent was remarkable at making sure that there was no drama as those offers were made to the president. And I, I give John Sununu a lot of credit. John Sununu and Brent Scowcroft had a much better relationship than is perceived. And they were compatible with each other. They both were very, very bright. They both had the president's confidence. And I think that they didn't see each other's role as a threat. And so that was a, a degree of trust that came from the president. The president said, I'm putting a team together and it's a team. And he empowered uh, Brent and obviously he empowered his chief of staff. And one thing that I, John Sununu only had one deputy chief of staff. So I was, I was doing right now what two or three deputy chiefs of staff do, but it, it was, I was a witness to the wonderful relationship that Brent and John Sununu had and that Bob Gates and I ended up having because we were deputies. The one thing though, that to add to this, you know how many staff people there were under Brent Stokroft? At the NSC, 50. You know how many there were under Obama? 400. If you look at the people who were at the NSC, they actually all had a lot of background. Most of a large percentage of the Obama people were young, young people in their 20s and 30s who worked in the campaign and all that. And I'm not being nasty here, but there is a difference in the maturity and experience of the people. And there was a small number of not this huge bureaucracy of 400 people. Grant, what question did I fail to ask? Something that came up sort of every chapter was how experienced President H.W. Bush was, probably one of the most experienced presidents we've had on, on foreign policy stuff. I think what's interesting is that uh, Joe Biden might have a, a claim to at least partially being as experienced since he chaired the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. He was a minority um, ranking member of the minority on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. He also was vice president for eight years. What lessons uh, from government do you think H.W. learned that he took into the White House that Joe Biden could learn from? Well, first of all, George H.W. Bush also ran institutions, CIA director. That's the most mysterious institution there is in our government. And and he restored it and empowered it, and he didn't dictate it. He also had been in the UN, ambassador to the United Nations. So uh, he had to understand the art of diplomacy. And that's very different from being, you know, a senator on the Foreign Affairs Committee, Foreign Relations Committee. So I think that he had experience in the field in these institutions. And so I would say President Bush is probably the most knowledgeable president we've had with regard to the institutions, not just of our government, but the institutions that implement policies around the world, the United Nations and whatever, and the really strange world of intelligence. So that that would be a big distinction. Um, Joe Biden, kept secrets that weren't that difficult to keep. George H.W. Bush had to learn to have secrets that were real secrets. <laughs> and and that I think that's a difference. So I would say he was also the head of the Republican Party. So he had the institution of, of the Republican Party, a two-party system. And 
it's funny. This is a little bit of a contrast to today where the Republican Party seems to be headed more by a personality than grounded in what I would say the institutions of Republicanism are. So we have a cult figure rather than an entity that is grounded in Republican principles, you know, the, the party of Lincoln. And George Bush understood that. And Andrew Natsios very kindly put in, in his introduction how I went to hear George Bush speak in, when he was chairman of the Republican Party in Boston. And the truth is I was running for office and I got this call saying, we've got a free ticket for you to come here, the chairman of the Republican Party come. I was all excited. Anybody would give me something free. I went to it. Yes, there were very few seats filled because it was the height of Watergate and not a lot of people showed up to hear the chairman of the Republican Party speech. And I expected the speech to be about partisan politics. Instead, it was about the institutions of democracy. And it was a remarkable speech. Just it, it changed how I viewed things. It was not a great speech rhetorically, but substantively, it really rang true that, and you remember at the time, the institutions of everything were being attacked. Every institution was under attack. He was there saying how important the institutions were. And it impressed me. I think that's what George H.W. Bush brought to the presidency as well. He respected all of the institutions in our government and the institutions of democracy, and he strengthened them and he empowered them. I'm not sure President Biden has the same passion about doing that. I hope he does. But his life experiences were a little bit different. You know, Joe Biden, I think, was the youngest member of Congress when he got elected to Congress, like 25 years old, 26 years old or something. He was very young when he went to Congress and um, very young when he went to the U.S. Senate. So he knows those institutions well, but I don't think he ever really came to appreciate the institutions of government that have to implement the policies made by either Congress or the White House. Two comments. One is a comment Brent Stokerup once made uh, to his staff. He said, whenever I see, when people say there's a light at the end of the tunnel, Brent Stokerup would not say, oh, we're going to be saved by this. He'd say, you know, it could be a freight train about to run us over. And, and so he was very skeptical, as Bush was, that, you know, that something good happens and all of a sudden everything's going to be transformed. And that's one of the things that is a real problem for presidents who are isolated from the, the reality of the world. They sometimes misinterpret what's happened and think things are going to get better. I remember when Omar Bashir overthrew Sadiq al-Makdi in Sudan. We had a celebration in AID because Sadiq Al-Makdi, who was democratically elected and pro-Western, but he was committed horrendous atrocities in South Sudan. We had a celebration. And one of the old timers in the office who was a career officer said, you shouldn't be celebrating, Andrew. Brent Scowcroft is correct. He could be worse. I said, how could he possibly be worse? Well, he was worse. <laughs> Brent correct. And we shouldn't have had the celebration. <laughs> okay. The second thing I would I would say is that so prudence and skepticism has a real role in the White House, which is why Bush made very few mistakes. He may not have done some things he should have done, like in Bosnia and all that, leaving it to the Europeans to fix the Bosnian civil war. But I mean, how many things can we do? There are so many things that we were orchestrating around the world. We left one thing to the Europeans, and they, I have to say they screwed it up, and they admit it. Okay. The second thing I would say is that when you're a legislator, all you worry about 
is getting the bill through the Congress onto the president's desk, whoever the president's to sign. Ultimately, all legislators are policymakers. They have no idea, unless they came from an executive branch background, about implementation. Sometimes they write the stupidest things in these laws that are that cannot be implemented. You know, and I've had legislators say it to me, senators and congressmen say, Andrew, that's your problem. I say, what do you mean it's my problem? You're writing this legislation. Why don't you think through what you're doing to, in terms of those of us who have to implement what you're writing? So no, that's not my problem. It's your problem. So I, I think there's a risk that because Joe Biden spent 40 years of his life in the, the U.S. Senate, and who is his vice president? Another, another legislator. That you need people with a lot of executive experience who realize when you're making the policy, someone has to actually implement this thing. So that's a risk. Now, and it's not a function, by the way, of ideology, and it's not a function of political party. This has to do with we are all prisoners of our CVs, of our resumes, and we learn certain things. And and, and um, I had to unlearn being a legislator for 12 years in Massachusetts when I took successive administrative jobs because it was interesting and useful in a number of ways, but it also ignored the implementation side. Uh, Andy, Andrew, thanks very much for doing the podcast. Thanks for pulling the book together. Uh, it's it's terrific. We wish you the best with it. That's a wrap. As always, Fault Lines is produced by the National Security Institute. Find out more about the Institute and upcoming events at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. If you have any topics you'd like us to cover in the future, send us an email at nsi at gmu.edu or tweet us at masonnatsec. If you like what we're doing here, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find our show. We'd like to thank Claude Jennings for editing, Lester Munston for hosting. And Grant Haver for producing and directing. Join us next week for another provocative conversation and further analysis of national security's fault lines.